We are in the book of Colossians, and uh, we are going about the same speed that we went in the book of Luke, because I'm going to preach on the same verses we preached on last week, and in fact, I'll probably preach on these same verses for the next several weeks. How exciting. We don't aim to entertain here. We want to get into it and get deep with it. Uh, We are going to be, as often as possible, um, uh, uh, structuring messages such that we can have a QA and a time afterwards. Um, and so I want to encourage you. I think this is, it's fun. It's, 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 to me, it's, I, I love the unpredictability of it. Um, some of the best stuff happens in, in the Q&A time. Um, and so if, if you have a question as we're going through this, text this number. Just ask the question on this number. And we'll try to get to two, three, sometimes even four of these questions uh, at the end of the service. Uh, so uh, keep that in mind. All right? I'm entitling this message, God's Will in God's Word, because we're hovering over this concept of God's will. We, t- we started on this passage last week, because this is at the center of this passage. Paul's praying that we'd be filled with the knowledge of God, uh, God's will. Um, and so this morning, we're going to be looking at how this applies to God's Word, as we study God's Word. We're in Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, same verses as last week. For this reason, Paul says, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Why? Why is this important, Paul? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Worthy, we saw last week, does not mean deserving of, trying to pay it back or anything like that. It means to live a life that is congruent with the Lord, consistent with the Lord. A life that reflects the fact that He is Lord of your life. Axios is the word that's used there. It's axiomatic. Given who the Lord is, it's axiomatic we should live this way. Live a life worthy of the Lord and therefore please Him in every way. Here's what it looks like. We bear fruit in every good work. We grow in the knowledge of God. Uh, when we're filled with the wisdom of God, we're strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, no longer just relying on our own resources. And when we're filled with His glorious might, we have great endurance and patience, even when we are, as the Colossian Christians, we're facing persecution, sometimes horrendous persecution from the Roman Empire. Uh, we there, not only do that, but we live with joyful thanks towards the Father. There's a gratitude that characterizes our being. Because he's the one who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. Praise God. What a great passage. I love it. So, Father, would you fill us with your, the knowledge of your will? Use this message as a way of helping us grow in our capacity to be surrendered to your will, to be discerning of your will, to be a people who live in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, just to return a little bit to the topic we were talking about last week as we move into some new territory. Uh, there are a number of legitimate, perfectly legitimate questions that we need to answer about how to discern the will of God. Uh, it's, it's something that I think everybody to some degree wrestles with. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's, there's times where you really want to know, what does he, what does he think? How, how would he direct me here. In fact, I'm told that one of the most, if not the most common requests that our prayer teams get during service, and by the way, I would encourage you to take advantage of them throughout our worship service. They're over there on the sides of the auditorium, and they're open just to pray with you for any need that you have. And uh, I'm told that, that they frequently get questions about, from people uh, wanting to know what God's will is about something. Sometimes the stakes are very high. Am I supposed to stay in this relationship or get out? 
Am I supposed to move or stay? You know, how do I handle this situation? Should I, should I take the person to court or not? There's, there's, they're seeking to know God's will. And those are all legitimate. We're going to be talking about that now and for at least the next week and maybe the week after that. How to discern the will of God. But the most fundamental challenge, and I talked about this last week, the most fundamental challenge I don't think is that. The most fundamental challenge is having a heart that wants that. Do we really want to be submitted to God's will? Uh, do we remember that we're supposed to be submitted to God's will? Uh, we're conditioned, partly because of the fall and partly for those of us in America anyways, because of the culture we live in. We're systematically conditioned to live life on our own. We are the people who have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have our freedom. It's our national religion. And so we live with this mindset of, of, of independence. Uh, we value it uh, tremendously in our freedom, and our will. And so to live with a mindset, to live with a mindset of being submitted to the will of another, it's, it's really contrary to our, our cultural conditioning. It's just contrary to our fallen nature. Um, we can do that in theory. This is what always happens. We do it in theory. Oh, yes, Jesus is my Lord. But see, in reality, he's only Lord to the extent that we are submitted to him on a moment-by-moment basis. Because our whole life consists of nothing but strung together moment-by-moments. Ask yourself the question, this week, how many times did you do something because you felt led of God to do it that you weren't going to do anyways? It's just, I don't ask that to, to, to shame us. It's just to observe something. We, we pretty much live as functional atheists. We do our own will. So our prayer has got to be Paul's prayer here. Paul was continually, urgently praying that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Not just having God on retainer, as we said last week. The consultant God where we dial them up when we need a little of advice or want a little advice or maybe there's a rule that we're supposed to dial them up when it comes to big things like this. And so we have God on retainer. Uh, but we otherwise live life on our own, Lord of our own life. No, no, no. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will is to be emptied of ourself. It's the only way it can happen. And so our prayer has got to be, Lord, empty me so that I would be submitted to you and, and, and seeking you and, and remembering that this is what the kingdom is all about. To be in the kingdom of God means you're the dome over which God is king. That means you're submitted to his will. And so we want to live that uh, and have that mindset. Now, having said that, see, if that's not taken care of, then everything else is going to be, where it's just, we're, we're kidding ourselves. Trying to figure out what God's will is, but, but we're not submitting to him on a regular basis. But having this mindset that will be submitted to him uh, on a regular basis, uh, and be aware of this, and we're going to have a heart that seeks this, that doesn't itself answer the question of how do we know what God's will is? And so that's what we're going to enter into now. And this morning, I want to talk about the most fundamental way that we know what God's will is. The most fundamental way is the Bible. The Bible is given to us as a way of knowing God's will. It sets the parameters within which we know what God's will is. It says in Psalms 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a path, in a, a light for my path. The imagery is someone here walking in the, the, the dark of the night. Uh, on a pathway out in the mountains or something like that. And uh, they've got a lamp, an oil lamp, and they hold it down to their feet so that they can see where the next step's going to go. It's not a spotlight that can get, tell you where you're going to be a, a, you know, a mile from now, but it will tell you where the next step or, or two should be. And that keeps you from stumbling in the night. So also the Word of God is like that lamp, and, and it, it guides our, our, our feet. Uh, it's, it, it sets out the trajectory that we're to be moving in. It is a map. 
It is the ultimate criteria by which we discern what God's will is or not. Uh, anything that we think we might hear that might be God's will. I'm thinking maybe God wants to go this way or that way. If it's not consistent with the word, well, that's a, a, one very good reason to think that what you heard was not God's will. Maybe it was just your own voice, or maybe it's the pastrami talking, or, 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 or maybe it's a, a memory or whatever, but, but it, the, the word of God sets the parameters within which we understand what God's will is to be. Which means... That there's a lot of things that we don't have to pray about. There's a lot of things where it's actually against God's will that you pray about. Because uh, he's already weighed in on stuff. He's, okay, here's my will. So we don't have to keep going back to him. Is it your will that? No, read the book. <laughs> read the book. So here's a classic example. Paul says in Ephesians 5, this kind of just covers all of ethics, I think. Follow God's example. He uses the Greek word mimetai. We get the word mimic from it. So mimic God. Mimic God. And, of course, the place where we mimic God is in Jesus Christ, where, where God becomes visible. So follow God's example. Live in love. Here's what it looks like. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Do that. Live in love. Be towards everybody else the way Christ has been towards you. He died for you when you were an enemy. Live that way. Which means we don't have to ever pray, God, is it your will that I love this person? You never have to pray that. You never have to pray, God, should I love or despise them? I, you know, is it okay if I just hate them? No, no, you know what? Follow the example of, of Jesus Christ. Now, you may pray, Lord, give me wisdom about how to love them. Or you may pray, God, give me the power to love them. Uh, you know, strengthen me to love them. Uh, tell me, you know, what would be the best way to love them. But you don't have to pray whether or not you should love them. For all people at all times, in all situations, no ifs, ands, or buts, doesn't matter if they are nice to you or are mean to you or are threatening you, your job is to be Jesus towards them. So that one's off the table. No need to pray about that one. Same thing holds true for a lot of things. Lord, do you, do you want me to, should I live generously or, or stingy? What's your will? Is your, will that I be stingy? Uh, God, should I be truthful or, 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 or deceptive? Uh, God, is it, what's your will about being faithful to my spouse? You know, it, it, would you like me to have an affair? You know what? You don't need to go there. God, should I be humble or arrogant? What is your will? It's so hard to know these things. And I'm great. You would think I would know these things. But, well, Lord, what is your will? Should I be... Now, see, he's weighed in on those things. He's told us his will. Uh, it, it, it's clear in... It's all covered in really following the example of Jesus Christ. When it comes to knowing what character God wants, wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we decide, when it comes to knowing God's character and, 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 and the relationships he wants to have with us and, and us to have with ourselves and with others, no, we have that in Scripture in, in, in very clear terms. And so that's the ultimate criteria. That's the ultimate lamp that, that guides our feet as we walk through this dark world. Now, having said that, there's a few matters that we need to be careful about. Uh, following the Bible, going to the Bible uh, to discern God's will. It's, it's, it's our most fundamental criteria. It's our lamp. But it's also possible to misunderstand the word. And it's also possible to abuse the word and be abused by the word. There's some things we've got to watch out for. One of the things that makes this a little bit challenging today, problematic today, is this. When I talk about reading the Bible, studying the Bible, being a person who's in the word... You probably get a picture right now in your head of you or somebody else that you know uh, reading the Bible on their own. They're, they're in their bedroom, on their knees perhaps, and they're reading the Bible. They're studying the Bible. That's our idea of being a Bible reader. You read the Bible alone in your room. Know that 
throughout most of history, no one would have thought that way. That's a phenomenon that has risen over the last 200 years in Western culture as the majority of people have, have learned how to read. Uh, we, and and as, as printing uh, Bibles has become less expensive, so most people own a Bible or ten. Uh, now, now we are individual Bible readers, but it hasn't always been that way. Throughout most of history, very few people could read. And throughout most of history, uh, books were incredibly expensive because they had to be copied by hand. So most people couldn't read and didn't own books. The way you read or experienced a book was by having it read to you. For 99.9% of the people, it was read to you. And that was usually done in the context of a community. When the biblical authors wrote their works, what they had in mind was not an individual person studying the book, but rather the book being read in a community of faith. And then being discussed in a community of, of faith. You find this reflected in in the book of Revelation where he says at the beginning of this book, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those, plural, who hear it and take it to heart. So he's writing this with the intention that someone's going to read it and others are going to hear it. And that makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. Uh, You're you're not there trying to, you know... uh, Focus on, on little minutia. Uh, when you hear it, it has, you, know, you have to think in terms of its general impact, the general impression it means, rather than trying to like, parse out every particular verb and, and trying to relate it to contemporary events or things of that sort. Uh, the, the Bible was written with the idea that it would be heard in a community context. The Bible was written with the understanding that it would be heard and discussed and taught in a community context. That's why the, the, the New Testament in particular puts a premium on the importance of teachers. God knows that when it comes to understanding other cultures and ancient books, it's not easy. The potential for misunderstanding is huge. And so there's an important role for teachers who are set aside and gifted and called by God to get into the culture of the Bible and to, and, and to, to know the language and, and to you know, know kind of what some of the issues in order to teach and to guide people on, on how to read the Bible and how to interpret the Bible. When you have those things in place, a community and good teaching, there's a lot less potential for the individual to get their own interpretation and kind of go off into some la-la land, thinking that what they interpreted the Bible to mean was what the Bible actually meant. Uh, This is not to say that it's bad to read the Bible on your own. I encourage it. Read the Bible. But always be aware of what you don't know. And so don't assume that what the verse means to you right now is the actual meaning of the verse. Sometimes we can get it wrong, even when things strike us as obvious. There was a lady that I knew a number of years ago who started this business. A real godly lady started this business. She felt it was God's will to start this business. Uh, she prayed about it and, and whatever. She started this business, and it, it took off really good for about a few months, and then it crashed. went bankrupt. She had to quit it. And it, her faith really came crashing down because the verse that she felt like God gave her and she found this verse before she started the, the, the business, was Proverbs 16. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Right? There it is. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it for me. God said it. I believe it. That's good enough for me. God said it. I, I love the attitude of that song, but the question you've got to ask is, you know, what did God say? First know what God said. Uh, before you decide to stake everything on it. It looks like a straightforward verse. Your plans will succeed. Not may succeed. Not possibly succeed. They will succeed. And she committed her plans to the Lord, and they did not succeed. So she thought God was lying to her. She could no longer trust God. Look, you have to ask the question. I mean, 
Is it the case that, uh, taking that one verse, that if you commit your plans to the Lord, that there's no possibility that your company could fail? Really? Really? Uh, is it possible to commit your plans to the Lord and yet just make dumb decisions? Uh, does, doesn't that happen sometimes? Can't businesses fail even though you commit your plans to the Lord and you're a really godly person? Maybe you just aren't good at business. Or maybe you made a wrong decision. Or maybe somebody ripped you off. Or maybe somebody set your building on fire. Or, or, or maybe somebody sued you wrongfully, but they still won. A lot of things like that happen, right? Is it the case that, that every business that fails is because they didn't trust the Lord? Uh, really, think about it. Uh, is it the case that if you trust your plans to the Lord, uh, that now there's no possible decision that anyone could ever make or that an angel could make that could adversely affect your company? All of a sudden, God cancels free will because you, you committed your plans to the Lord. It's, isn't there something else going on here? And see, here is a, uh, is a, is a classic case. And I see stuff like this happening all the time with, 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 with believers. Sincere people, but they grab onto something, and you're setting yourself up for massive disappointment if you're not understanding it correctly. And I can understand why someone in our culture would read this and come to the conclusion that they've got a magical principle that guarantees financial success. I understand that because our culture is different than their culture. But here's where it would be good to have a teacher explain the way Proverbs work and the role of hyperbole in ancient cultures, especially ancient Near Eastern culture. They used exaggeratory language and unqualified language, unequivocal language, unnuanced language for the purpose of emphasis. The way to say that something is really important and put an exclamation part, uh, point by it is to state it in its most extreme form. And so here the author says, commit, your, you know, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Not because he's giving us a magical principle, but he's saying it's really important to commit your plans to the Lord. But no one took that literally like it couldn't therefore possibly ever uh, fall flat. A lot of the teachings of the Bible are like this. And you just got to you know, know that you're dealing with an ancient kind of literature. Uh, uh, raise up a child in the way that he should go. And when they're older, they, they will not be apart from them. Is that a magical principle that takes away the free will of your child if you just are a good enough parent? So they cannot possibly turn out to be criminal. You know what that does to parents who have kids and they, they were godly, they did the best they could, but then their, their kid turns out uh, to, to, to be a drug addict or, or end up in prison or something like that. Well, it must be their fault, right? No, no, see, the, the passage is stating it in, in an unequivocal, unqualified way, but you can't take that literally. Or when Jesus says, if your eye offends you, cast it out and, and you know, throw it from you. Don't take things like that literally. It's important to know something about the background of the Bible. Don't assume that the text is saying what you think it says. Read it in the context of a community and always uh, have, it, have your, your information of the Bible uh, informed by a sound teacher, which fortunately you all guys all have that one down, so we can move on. <laughs> Should I be modest? Or, uh, no, I'm kidding! No, I, stop it! Stop it! I was not fishing! <laughs> China. Here's another thing, very important. As you're reading the Bible, always read it in context. Always read it in context. It's been said. I love this saying. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That's a good one. Memorize that. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Uh, Which simply says this. If you take a verse out of context, you can prove anything with it. You can make it mean anything. And, And you don't have to even be trying to deceive yourself or somebody else in doing that. We do it automatically. Our brain, our filtering system is such that if we're not paying attention to context, we'll find any verse out of context, and, and it will just confirm what we already think. It will be justification for what we're going to do. Uh, you, you know, we, we self-select like that. It's always got to be put in context. 
Um, you, you saw that video, or some of you saw the video a couple weeks ago when we were celebrating the end of our study of the book of Luke where they did this little montage of quotes for me, highlights from the book of Luke. And it was hilarious because they had me out there you know, saying that God hates marriage, God loves divorce, God's cursing you with children, and all these other kind of things. Or I would go through hell for the president and all, all you know, weird stuff. And, uh, uh, well, maybe I would, but, but that's beside the point. But that was funny because they were taking me out of context. You see, when you quote someone out of context, boom, you can... You can put anything in their mouth. Always look at the context. Otherwise, it's a pretext for a proof text. Here's an example. Controversial example, but that's what makes it fun. <laughs> I, I had a, a student at Bethel one time, uh, this young lady come up to me, and, and she was uh, telling me that she was a brilliant, brilliant young lady with leadership capacity oozing out of her ears. She was just, she had it going on. But she came and told me that the devil, she was being under attack of spiritual warfare ever since she started teaching, uh, taking my class. The devil was getting her, in the, and the temptation was, she kept on having like pictures in her head about her doing what I do, teaching, and, 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 and being a pastor and preaching. She goes, I keep on, I, I, they, they keep coming, in, coming into my head. I need to, I'm praying against this, but, but why is that happening? And I was saying, would you consider the possibility that that's God talking to you, <laughs> not the devil? But see, her pastor had told her, had given her this verse. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit. Oh, there's an amen. I knew I'd get an amen out of you. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Woo-wee! All right, there's a verse right there. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me, God said it. Okay, yeah, there it is. The verse says that. Part of God's word. Always put it in context. And so let's look at the two verses leading up to this verse. It's all actually part of one thought. Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, which means not with braided hair. Look around. Any braided hair here? <laughs> Jezebel spirits reading braided hair. Gold! Gold! Anyone, any women here got gold? Man, we, I'm getting a word that we should have an altar call right now. Lay your gold on the altar. You give up that gold and those pearls! Pearls! And unbraid that hair right now. And costly garments. Come up here and lay those... No, don't do that. That could get weird. Okay, well, here's the thing. I, you know... I, I don't hear people going around saying that it's, 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 it's a prohibition, a timeless universal truth that women should never have braided hair. Like, how random would that be? God says, I don't like braided hair. Or, or gold, or, or pearls, or, or, or costly garments. But all of a sudden when Paul says, hey, women shouldn't teach you have authority over a man, all of a sudden that's a timeless universal principle. You see, what's, there's something else going on here, perhaps. And, and the people who are doing this are absolutely sincere, and I respect them, and, and, and the issue is more complex than I can make it out to be right now. But, but the fact that everything in the context uh, is, is clearly culturally relative, it meant something back in the culture uh, it, that, that, that Timothy was pastoring in, which, which was Ephesus. It meant something to have braided hair that it doesn't mean now. It meant something to wear gold and, and pearl and costly garments and to teach in a religious environment. It meant something then that it doesn't mean now. It meant something there that it doesn't mean here. You see? Now, there's principles we can draw out of it, but it's pretty arbitrary to say, hey, one of those things we just think is absolutely a timeless and u- universal principle. The context has got to inform what it means, uh, the, the role it plays in our theology and, 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 and what we do with it. Um, it's a little bit like this. 
if you, here's what's kind of going on in this passage. If you want to be a missionary to, uh, to Afghanistan and you're a woman, I would encourage you to, A, don't go alone, and B, go with a man and C, that man should at least have the appearance of being in charge. Because in most parts of Afghanistan, if you go and you're the top dog, it just isn't going to fly, and in fact, for your own safety, you better not try to do that. It's just a patriarchal, male-dominated culture. And, and you got to, as a missionary, go to the, start where the culture's at. Gradually move people in a direction, but, but you, you can't just bulldoze over a culture. In that context, I would, from my opinion, I'd say I, I don't want a woman to teach her have authority over a man. Now, you go outside of Afghanistan and uh, be a missionary to Europe, France, anywhere, I'd say, have at it, baby. Uh, if you got the gift, if you got the calling, go, go for it. But in other cultures, not so much. So also in, uh, in Ephesus... I think if you look into the historical background, it becomes clear why Paul was putting some strong restrictions around the role of women there. Can't get into it now, but, but, but it, it, there's, there's a clear historical reason for that. Um, but it doesn't apply to all, all times and all places. The other thing is that look at the whole context of the Bible. And it's important to always read the, the, every part of the Bible in light of, of the whole Bible. Most of the Bible is written, in fact, all of the Bible to some degree is written from a very patriarchal perspective because that was the culture, male-dominated culture. That's been true historically, and God has to, as we'll say here in a moment, accommodate some of that even to communicate his word. So it's all written by men, uh, almost all, and from a male perspective, but you do have exceptions. And if it was a timeless, universal principle on God's part that women should never teach or have authority over a man... How could you have any exceptions in the Bible? You find women leaders, you find women teachers. In fact, you find women teachers whose teaching is part of the Bible, the inspired word of God. You got Mary in, in, in Luke chapter 1 with that famous Mary's Magnificat. And there's some good teachings in this song that she gives. Man, good teachings about how God works in history. But see, if it's a, if it's a timeless universal principle that women should never teach or have authority over a man, the angel should have said, Mary, shut up, you're a woman. Or at least, if it's going to get in the Word of God, there should all of a sudden be a clause that says, Men, stop reading at this point, because God forbid you should ever learn anything from a woman. (laughs) No, but see, it's there in the inspired Word of God. And when men, believers, read that, you're listening to a woman. You're being taught by a woman, uh, a spirit-inspired woman. And thank God we're in a culture where there's no longer prohibitions on that. Hallelujah. And so it's always important important to look at the context, literary context, and the, the whole context of the Bible. The final thing I want to say is this. And then we're going to go to our questions. So be thinking of questions. It's always important to distinguish, as you're going to the Bible, to discern the will of God. To distinguish between God's ideal will and God's accommodating will. Or sometimes it's called God's permissive will. God's ideal will is what God would want if things were perfect. God's accommodating will is what God wants given that they're not. Given that things are not perfect. It's, it's in, in most situations, to some degree at least, throughout history, the question is not what is God's ideal. The question is, given how messed up things are, what's the best possible? Uh, given the, the limited range of options here, which one is preferable? That's God's accommodating will. A classic example is, 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 is marriage. It's really clear from Genesis 1 before the fall that God's ideal was to have a, one man and woman together in marriage, having, bearing children uh, for their whole life. Monogamy. But the fall happens and the world gets screwed up and, and people start going to war and men get killed off. And because of the violent world that we live in, when, when women don't have a protector uh, in violent cultures, they're vulnerable. The women and the children are vulnerable and sometimes they starve to death. So you find in the Bible that God, for a period of time, accommodates that. 
And he says, look, monogamy is my ideal, but I'm going to bend on that one because polygamy, having many wives, is better than having women and children being raped and starving to death. And so he accommodates his will. He even went so far as to have this thing called having concubines, which wasn't even an official kind of a marriage. wasn't at all close to God's ideal, but it's better than having women and children being vulnerable and, and starving to death. God accommodates uh, his will to the fallenness of the world. I think it's, it's clear in the Bible that God's ideal was to have men and women as, as equal. We together are, are the image of God. But the world is a fallen place and things get screwed up and it becomes a power struggle. And men, because of, generally speaking, statistically, their superior strength have tended to be the one in charge because of superior strength. And there's been a battle between the sexes. God's ideal is what we find in Christ, that in Christ there's neither male nor female. And all the significance of that distinction should be set aside. But in the fallen world, man, it's, it's, it's been a war zone. And men have, have been uh, on top of things. And so God, the missionary to the world, has to accommodate that structure. And so you find in the Bible uh, his, permi- his, his permissive will, his accommodating will, and it looks as though he's okay with women not having any rights. It looks as though he's okay with women being the property of men. It looks as though he's okay with women not teaching or having authority over men. And for a period of time he is, but only as an accommodation. His, ide- we, uh, his ideal will is very different from that. You find parts of the Bible where it looks like God's okay with slavery or God's okay with violence or God's perfectly cool with kings and governments. Even though when Israel wants a king and a government, uh, God says, they've rejected me. But he doesn't stop. He accommodates that. Now he starts choosing the kings. You see, it's, it's God's accommodating will. And what that means to us, this, this distinction plays itself out in two ways. And I close with this, but then we'll go to questions. Uh, it means two things. Just because... Something was God's accommodating will in the Bible does not mean it's his will for you right now. Because God accommodated it in the past does not mean that you're in the same place that they were at. That's why I think women should be able to teach and have authority. And we we encourage that uh, uh, here. Because we're not in the same place that they were in ancient Ephesus. We're not in the same place as they are right now in Afghanistan. Um, I don't want anyone today going out and saying, Oh, I'm going to become a polygamist because it's in the Bible. Right there. David was, it was good enough for David, it's good enough for me. God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. Polygamy. Uh, There's a little jingle I could get out of that one. No, you know, he did permit that. Not now, though. Or at least not here. Now, if you go to Kenya and other places, uh, for all I know, it's still something that God accommodates. What I do know is that if we, you go over there and you're not you know, on the inside of the culture and you start in the name of a God's ideal, you start breaking up polygamous marriages, you're going to do more harm than good, that's for sure. Because now all the reasons that God had for, for uh, permitting polygamy in the first place are going to be come to, come to pass. You're going to have vulnerable women and children, people out on the streets and going hungry. Um, so it, some of that is still accommodating. You have to be on the inside of the culture to know what is still applying and what's not. The second point is this. Just because something is God's ideal will in the Bible, even if you know that it's God's ideal will, does not mean it's his will for you right now. Because God may still be accommodating. In fact, I'm sure in some respects God is still accommodating. Yes, we're filled with the Spirit and we've got regenerate natures, but, but we live in an imperfect world and we ourselves are still imperfect, so God still accommodates. If you march into Kenya, as I just mentioned, split families apart. Yeah, monogamy is, is God's ideal. But uh, sometimes applying the ideal in situations in an unloving way or an uninformed way is evil. You bring about harm. To have any wisdom about 
how close to an ideal you or someone else can, 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 can get. To have any wisdom about how God may be accommodating this people group or this person, you've got to be on the inside of the culture and on the inside of the people. You've got to be in relationship. It takes tremendous life living together to have any wisdom about what God might want to do in a person's life. Uh, how close to the ideal can they go? What, what parts should just be accommodated? You have to be on the inside of, of, of things. Which means that if you're not on the inside of a person's life, if they haven't invited you on the inside of their life, you don't have any business trying to figure out what would be God's accommodating will or ideal will in their life. Your job is just to bless them, agree with God that they were dying for, and have no other opinions. I uh, disagree that, that, that they're what, what Jesus is dying for. What usually happens, we're trained with this in religious circles, is we apply God's accommodating will to ourselves, uh, us and our tribe, and we apply God's ideal will to other people. God understands our sin, you know, we're in process, but we hold God's ideal over other people's lives. That's called judgment. That's called judgment, and the Bible is very much against it. There's a lot of ambiguous stuff in the Bible, and we just got to be aware of that, but the center, the center of it, what God's will is for our character and our relationships is very clear. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Second thing I'll say, and then I'll open it for questions, is, is just this. As you're reading the Bible on your own, and I encourage that, it's good to have community, it's good to have teachers. It's also good to take advantage of resources. So you know something about the kind of literature you're reading. A really good resource we recommend a lot here is Fee and Stewart's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Very good book, just telling you kind of some of the background things you need to know if you're going to uh, uh, interpret the Bible in an accurate way and not be drawn aside into some misinterpretations. Okay, let's try to get to two uh, questions. Jason, how do we discern God's will for issues that don't seem to be in the Bible? Well, that is, that, 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 that's what the next couple weeks are going to be about. At least next week is going to be all about that. Uh, many of the issues that we face today are not explicitly in the Bible. There are principles that we'll have uh, that we'll be applying uh, to all the issues. But uh, on, on the particulars, there's no verse in the Bible that will tell you whether you should live in this area or that area. There's no one verse that can tell you about uh, at what point in, a, let's say, an abusive relationship you decide to get out of it and call an end to the marriage. Uh, there's other things you have to discern there. How to apply the Bible, how to apply principles and things like that. One of the things that makes legalism attractive to many is it has a real simplistic answer to everything. Oh, here's the book of rules, and you just one size fits all. And they don't realize how self-serving that often is because they don't apply the, the, the rules the same way. As I just mentioned, they'll apply the accommodating will of God to themselves and the ideal will to other folks. But it's so simple. We just would like to have... I, I've heard one church that their whole counseling center was simply that this... People would come, and they'd say what their problem was. The person would pray, and then get a Bible verse and give it to them. You know, here's the Bible verse. That was their whole... And they actually were bashing any kind of counseling. as That's secular. We just go by the Bible, and here's a verse. What happens if you pulled out the verse, go hang yourself or something? I mean, that's a Bible verse. What does the Word of God say? Go hang yourself. Or Judas went out and hung himself. Uh, no, nah, that, that's not wisdom. So we'll be talking about other things, uh, other ways of trying to discern uh, the will of God in more particular ways in the weeks to come. Thank you, Jason. Other, next question. From Mary. So would homosexuality be considered God's accommodating will since it is becoming legal to have same-sex marriage? Wonderful, Mary. <laughs> oh, Evans, man. Very good. This is what I like about Q&A. You never know what's going to come down the pipe. Okay, look at it. Two things here. I want to make a big distinction. 
between what is going on politically and what we need to be thinking about as kingdom people. And those two things are very different. What your opinion is about what the government should have, what law should be there, whatever, that's, 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 a, that, that, that's one thing. The question we have to ask is, as kingdom people, does God ever accommodate? Does God's accommodation involve same-sex relationships? Now, here's the thing. Even that is political. Uh, in the, the context we're in right now, this is why some people are nervous right now. Because it's political, and, and there's, there's, the, the lines have been drawn, and the, 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 there's categories out there. And, and um, you know, so whatever you say can and will be used against you. And so people want to fit you into this category. Or are you a pro this? Are you anti this? Are you what this? You know, and they try to file it. And the sad thing about politics inside the church and outside the church is that once you get those categories in place, you don't need to have any kind of relationship. It makes a world of difference whether you're asking this question from the inside of a relationship, where you might have some wisdom about it, or whether you're asking it as a political question to solve the world's problems. From a kingdom perspective, we've got to always be aware that love is incarnational. It's always particular. And we need to ask the question from the inside of relationships. I'll, I'll just tell you this story, and I think it would just sort of uh, just give you something to think about on the way home. Uh, first time I really began to think seriously in, a, in I think, an incarnational way about this issue was about 20 years ago when I first developed a relationship with a, with a gay couple. And um, they asked me, these two women asked me, I was actually teaching at Open Door at the time, and they asked me to once a week counsel them on some issues they were going through. And so for about six weeks, we would go out after this Wednesday night class and just, you know, go for a couple hours and just talk. Uh, it was wonderful. As I got to know them, as they invited me on the inside of their life, one of the things I saw was that... Um, uh, there was a tremendous amount of wounding that was, had gone on. I mean, traumatic stuff, uh, nightmare stuff uh, for both. And the issues that were involved in that made me draw, come to the conclusion that, that uh, their, their, their gay orientation was the least of their problems. I mean, there are other things going on. In fact, I was very aware that for one of them at least, the only reason she was still alive was the love of this other woman. It'd be easy to come in as an outsider and say, oh, God's ideal is heterosexual monogamy, and you guys got to split up. It'd be kind of like going to Kenya and saying, hey, God's, God's ideal is monogamy, therefore these families got to split up. And you bulldoze, we bulldoze our way into China shops without even knowing what we're doing. And that's what happens as soon as an issue becomes politicized. We just bulldoze. Um, to, to have wisdom about this, my answer is that, yes, God accommodates that. God always meets us where we're at. And, and it takes a lot of wisdom to know how... You know, we always do this with ourselves and those who are close with us. It's like we don't work on everything at once. You know, we know that God... It, it, there's a process here. And, and so maybe now as you're working with a friend, here's the, this is the time to work on this issue. Now, now it's time to work on this issue. This is how it goes. It, it's, it's a process thing. And just when you think you're perfect, boom, God reveals another layer of sin in your life. Now it's time to work on that one. See, and those who are involved in your life may know the wisdom of when and where and how to push, to back off. Lives are very fragile things and they're very complex. So you can't have a bulldozing answer to that question. No, it's got to be asked in a loving way and and from the inside and accepting people where it's at. We have a long tradition of doing nothing but politics on that particular issue, which is why the other thing is to pull out the card and boom, there it is. There's my political answer. And in the meantime, people get crushed. Uh, not in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom. Uh, we ask it from the inside, inside the love. Amen. 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 
I want to encourage you to, as you read the Bible, do it in a formed way. Uh, do it. Uh, invite others in on the text in a communal way. I encourage you to read it in context. I encourage you to read it uh, with wisdom and without judging others. Amen. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And Yeah, yeah. So the question is, very, very good question, Vanessa. Is violence ever a part of God's accommodating will? Hmm. Um, you know, here's... There, oh, I'm writing a book on this right now. It's so hard to answer a question when you're writing a book on it because you've got to like, edit and censor and filter uh, and just get down the, the gist of it. Yes, in, a, in, in, in at least two senses and no in another sense. Yes, in the sense that God works with governments and authorities and nations to basically say, look, and you find this throughout the whole Bible, if you're going to be this way, since you are this way, I will be involved in this, steering it in ways that maximize justice. Um, and, and to curb sin in the world. So that's what Romans 13 is all about. God is ordering these things. Uh, not that he likes all the, the, the word there in the Greek means to file. Uh, like a librarian files a book. That you don't necessarily approve of the book, but you know where it goes. So also God's dealing with the nations. There's all this violence. And he's not above getting his hands dirty. In some sense, he participates in this. He allows it. If it's going to be this way, well then, we'll, bring, well, we'll, we'll work to bring good out of evil. So in that sense, he, he, he does. Uh, he accommodates it, uh, at least at parts in history, uh, in the Old Testament. And I think we've got to you know, take a look at those verses. Uh, you know, sometimes I think we read uh, a lot into them that that's not there. That's what this book I'm working on is all about. But he has accommodated periods in history. The real important question is, is for kingdom people, does he accommodate that? And that's where I would weigh in heavily and say no. That that, that this is something where, uh, this is, I, I think, the, the center of the gospel. Um, and I, I just think it's tragic when, when you find people who are in the kingdom of God uh, profess Christ as Lord, and they're sincere about that. But when it comes to this particular issue, and there's no issue I've ever found that's quite like this one. No, nothing gets people madder than, than questioning the legitimacy of this. just found this out this week. It's so funny. I, I, I tweet some nonviolent stuff. Man, it's just like poking a stick in a hornet's nest. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, uh, uh, what, hap- what happens is we just jump over Jesus' teachings and Paul's teachings, the whole New Testament, which is as clear as anything in the Bible, and we jump over and we grab hold of these you know, Old Testament passages and use that to legitimize um, uh, our violence. When, in fact, Jesus explicitly contrasted his teaching with all of that. You've heard it said unto you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, but I see unto you. Okay, here's one thing where, yeah, okay, maybe we used to accommodate that. Here's the new program. Uh, you turn the other cheek. You love your enemies. Don't, don't resist uh, e- evildoers. Never resort to the sword. And over and over and over again, love your enemies. In fact, in two verses in the New Testament, uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, love, love your enemies. Do good to them. Bless those who persecute you. Uh, love like the rain shines. Uh, or like the rain shines. Uh, like the rain falls and the sun shines. Like your Father in heaven, which means indiscriminately. And then he says, so that you may be children of your Father. It makes that a condition for being considered a child of God. I, I think it's central. So for the, our, our marching orders, I don't think there's... This is we've got to hold up this ideal and uh, strive for it. Excellent question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. That's great. Okay, very, very excellent question. Well, the question is, what about lying? Oh, <laughs> go back to her question. Don't kill each other on the disagreement. Uh, yeah. Well, see, and, and the question is raised because you have uh, two examples in Hebrews 11 of people who lied. Uh, the one I can think of off the top of my head is Rahab. Um, 
Oh, the, oh, the two midwives. Okay, yeah. And, and so does that mean that sometimes it's the lesser of two evils? And the Nazis come into your door. If they ask, are you hiding Jews upstairs? You know, are you going to say, oh, I got to tell the truth? You know, um, and so Bonhoeffer has a great chapter in this in his book on ethics uh, where he talks about uh, I, I, this whole issue. And, and see, in this, as a general rule, in fact, as an absolute rule, I, I think it's, a, it's certainly unequivocal to say we don't, don't ever lie for self-serving purposes. I mean, if we just lock in that one, it's good enough. Like, is it okay to cheat on your taxes? There, I think, God calls us. I mean, Jesus has strong teachings about this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't start doing this equivocation. Let your character be absolutely straightforward. But it can be the case, I think, that, that you can turn an ideal into a, a, a legalist rule that actually subverts the principle of love. And, and so there, there's got to be, in this case, you know, I, I, it may still be a sin to lie when they ask, are you hiding Jews upstairs? But that would be less of a sin than telling them that, that, that you, you, you are hiding them. And, well, yeah, that's where sometimes the options are, I got two, whatever I do here will be uh, something like sin, and so I have to ask, okay, what is the lesser of the two evils? And, and seek for God's guidance on that. Ask some questions. I, I, I love that. That also goes back to the question you asked about Bonhoeffer. With, with his, his uh, um, uh, he had this, made a decision that he thought he was supposed to be part of this, this uh, attempt to assassinate uh, Hitler. And uh, what's interesting about him, however, is that he never, Bonhoeffer, he was a pacifist who then felt led to be part of this assassination attempt, but he never tried to justify it by appealing to the Old Testament or some just war policy. Um, he says, I think this is sin, but I feel like I'm supposed to do it. Uh, and he used the, the example of Abraham and, and Isaac. You know, God sometimes calls people to do something that looks like absolute sin. What's interesting about that is that uh, that assassination attempt obviously failed. And there's a, there's a documentary that's out by, uh, that, that included an interview with uh, uh, Hitler's secretary who, I guess this was done in the 50s, gave a, te- a testimony about that. When that bomb went off, the guard had just moved uh, the briefcase, uh, really, incidentally. And so the way the bomb went off, the table as it flew actually protected Hitler and those who were on, uh, by him. And that had the effect. It killed some others, but it didn't touch him, which confirmed to Hitler that he was on God's side. And he was starting to equivocate about where to allocate his resources because the Russians were at this point, since 1944, were making some headway. And, um, uh, you know, should he back off of his final solution program? And this convinced him that he was on God's side and God would deliver him from this. And that just shows you when you play the devil's poker, uh, you know, you're going to lose in the long run. Uh, real good questions, you guys. Got time for one more. One more question. Yes. The guy, the guy wants to be polygamous. I <laughs> know. Uh, <laughs> Okay, uh, oh, oh, sure, sure. Okay, so the question is a really, really good one. You have God's ideal will and God's uh, accommodating will, but he asks, does God ever just use his sovereign will? This is something I was thinking about talking about next week or the week after, um, but I'll say a word about it here. God's sovereign will is, 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 is not so much what he uh, wants, calls us to do or how to live, but rather what, in fact, he's going to do. And so it doesn't have any ethical implications. So God's sovereign will is simply... Well, for example, when he says, uh, given the way governments operate, uh, w- how can I use this, this violence, to achieve the most justice? That's his sovereign will. So it, it, it doesn't affect us in terms of how we live, 
That's about God. It may help us understand kind of what's going on in the world and things like that, but, but uh, yeah, it's more of a descriptive thing than a prescriptive thing. It describes what, in fact, God's doing. It doesn't prescribe how we should uh, live, live out our lives. All right, so to sum it all up, the Bible is our guide. It's our lamp, and Jesus Christ is our supreme example. And so as much as there may be unclarity about things, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. The core things are, are clear and unambiguous. Read the Bible in community with others. Though it's not bad to read the Bible individually. But always have other eyes looking at this, especially when you're going to make a decision based on a verse uh, that you found in the Bible. Uh, always make sure that you're, you're, you're submitting yourself to good teaching and to get outside input on things. Always read the Bible in context. Every verse has to have a context. And read it in the context of the whole Bible. And then always be asking the question, uh, what is God's accommodating will and what is his ideal will? And how does that apply to my life? And make sure that you don't try to apply that to anyone else's life, life, uh, life, life unless they've invited you uh, to uh, do so. Okay, got time for a couple questions. What do we got? What do we got? From Ruth, does God's accommodating will have limits, such as violence? God's accommodating will does have limits. Uh, but applying that to violence is an interesting question. Here's the thing. When we're talking about... God's accommodating will. It makes a difference who you're talking about, whether you're talking about believers or non-believers. I think God clearly has an accommodating will towards violence uh, throughout history. You find him, he hates it, he hates it. He's always pulling the Israelites towards the, the, the most peaceful solution to things. But there's times where he lets them engage in their violence. Um, and then he works with them in that violence. If that's where you're going to be, then I'll, I'll, I'll work through that. He works through the violence of other nations. Uh, and, and he brings about as much justice as possible with that. We find that in Romans 13, where God's not a prissy God where he's going to say, oh, I, since I hate the sword, I'm not going to get involved with it. No, he, he gets involved with it to minimize it and to bring about as much justice as possible. So that's part of God's accommodating will. If we're talking about believers, I think God holds up this up as a central ideal for the kingdom. Uh, he, he, he accommodates himself in terms of working with us where we're at, but the ideal is, is, is as I read the gospel... Uh, is, is uh, loving our enemies and, and refusing to engage in violence against them. Uh, it's a central thing, one that we often miss because we read the Bible from a very uh, a lens that's been filtered with violence. We're so used to it. Um, Jesus at one point actually, in fact in two passages, uh, says that we're to love our enemies and bless our enemies and do good to our enemies, serve our enemies, so that we may be children of the Father in heaven who loves like the rain shines and like the, 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 uh, the, the, like the sun shines and like the rain falls. It looks like they're refusing to do anything other than loving your enemies is a condition of uh, uh, being a child of God. So this is, I think, a, a centrally important thing. What happens is because God has accommodated violence in the Old Testament, very frequently people who want to find some reason to justify their violence, they just jump right over Jesus and pull the verses out of the Old Testament. And apply it to themselves. Oh, God's accommodating will may not be ideal, but, but he, he understands it. Well, there's a difference between then and now. There's a difference between them and us. And as people who are called to be in the kingdom, uh, I submit to you that that prohibition on violence is, uh, is, a, is an absolute. Very good question. Thanks for asking it, Ruth. Another question. Could God's will accommodate gay marriage? Next question. Uh, this is what I love about this. This is great. This is good. This is good. 
Okay, look at let's, let's get real with this. It makes all the difference in the world, I think. First thing I want to say about that is this. Immediately, probably, some people in this room are nervous. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> because this is a political question. It's political in the broader public. It's political in the church. And the thing is, when, when an issue gets political, it starts to distort the question. Because now there's files out there, right? There's like categories. And immediately, when, when you're going to talk, people want to, they have a grid. And they're going to try to file you into a category. Yes or no? This or that? What about this? And uh, whatever you say can and will be used against you. That's just the nature of, of, of politics inside the church and outside the church. Sadly, however, Christian love, the gospel is, like I just said earlier, to, to have a wisdom about what, how to apply something to a person's life, you've got to be on the inside, which is exactly what you don't have when you're thinking in a political category. Uh, it, it's important that as we even think about this question, we do it in relationship, concretely, because love is always incarnational. Love is always concrete. Politics bulldozes over people. Right, here, here's, here's our categories. And we don't look at the particular people that get crushed with our little political programs. The world operates that way, but in the kingdom, we've always got to be asking the particular thing. Let me just uh, tell you this, this, uh, this story, and then think about it. But it was about, um, I guess, 50, no, 20 years ago, where um, I was asked by a gay couple uh, to help them through some of their issues. I had actually had met them at the Church of the Open Door. And so every Wednesday night after uh, this uh, class that I would teach, we would go out and just talk about some of their issues. Um, and I, what I learned over the process of about three months, getting to know them, they invited me on the inside of their life to work with, with some stuff. But being on the inside of this gay couple, uh, I saw that there was a tremendous amount of traumatic stuff that had gone on and was going on, a lot of damage, a lot of issues. Uh, it became clear to me, as I'm on the inside of this, that given the life of these two women, the fact that they're gay is actually the least of their problems. In fact, one person I was certain, the only reason they were alive was because of the love of this other uh, person. And so... To go in there and take this ideal and say, oh, first thing we got to do is end this. See, you, 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 an outsider would do that, but that would be killing somebody. And so you got to ask the question, it's not what's God's ideal, but what does love look like in this particular situation? And uh, love doesn't bulldoze over that in the name of an ideal, any more than you go to Kenya and start splitting apart polygamous marriages. But you've got to be on the inside. Love's on the inside. And, and maybe, maybe later we'll talk about that. Maybe, yeah, but see, this is the kind of thing we, we, we do automatically with ourselves. We know that God doesn't work on everything at once. We, we go crazy. God, God says, I'm working on this now, and I'm going to work on this now. And There's always other layers. And just when you think you've arrived and you're perfect, boom, there's another layer. And see, the Holy Spirit's, and, and, and if we're in community, God will use that. Uh, and people speaking into our lives to grow us. But we know this about ourselves and with, with, with those we're close to. Now, there's a wisdom about, you know, we, we're going we're to accommodate that now because we've got to work on this. Now we've got to work on that. And so I guess my answer is yes, he does. Uh, he's, uh, he, he always meets us where we're at. And it's important as we think about these, these tougher issues to keep an eye on love and concreteness and a- asking it from a context, not an abstract political way, but one that's invested in life and uh, uh, wrestling with things from the inside. Got time for one more, I think. Excellent stuff. 
from Christopher. The Bible has gone through many revisions and translations. It was also written by imperfect biased men. So how can I fully believe this is God's words and will? How can I discern it without a master's in theology? Uh, Very good. That's good. Well, you do need a master's in theology. Go for it. Yeah. You know, I guess I'd say this. um, It is the case that I find throughout the Bible that God accommodates. What you have in the Bible is God's word shining through very limited, fallen human beings. And you have to admit that the, the Bible reflects the limitedness in, in, in various ways, the limitations and the biases and even the fallenness of the people that, uh, that, that, that wrote it. So they, you know, they, they see the world, for example, in, in the Old Testament, you have an ancient cosmology, an ancient view of the world. It's flat, it's got a dome and held up by pillars and things of that sort. And of course it has to have that because God's writing through human beings. This didn't drop out of heaven. There's a, there's a historical process and historic, historical humans that God works through. So you'll have to take that into consideration. Uh, some, sometimes people have crashed, their faith has come to, uh, crashing down because they had an expectation that the Bible, well, they get disturbed when they find little errors in it or discrepancies or, or, or re- reflecting you know, ancient uh, cosmologies or, or, or other primitive morality uh, that you find in some parts of the Old Testament. And, and I, I would encourage people from the start, don't expect that from the Bible. Uh, it is uh, divinely inspired, but it's also very human. But you don't need a PhD or a master's degree to interpret it. You do, if you're going to be a teacher and get into the, the, the deeper stuff, you have to be willing to learn from others who have written on this and who teach on this. It's, it's uh, very important to be, I, I think, have, having teachers, good teachers, sound teachers, balanced teachers speaking into your life. And fortunately, you guys are blessed with that one already, so I, I, I'll leave that one go. But there you go. <laughs> but you know... The final word I say about it is this. It's the, the, the core thing is unambiguous. Uh, and that is, uh, for kingdom people, our, our job is to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Uh, and that, that's the simplest thing in the world, uh, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. All, ethical, all of our ethical issues are answered by looking at the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we still need God's wisdom on how to carry that out in particular ways. Uh, and we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come. But the core of it is absolutely unambiguous. Love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, pick up your cross, uh, and, and live a cruciform kind of life. And just be okay with not knowing certain things. When as you read the Bible, just be okay with mystery. I don't understand that part. Uh, maybe I'll ask it in a, in a Q&A next week. Uh, maybe I'll you know, do a little research on it or whatever. But be okay not figuring out everything. Reading ancient literature is, is uh, difficult for everybody. If you have any need here whatsoever, I encourage you to come and pray with these folks. Uh, that's what they're here for. Don't, tell you, don't walk out of here with that, that burden. So, Father, I thank you for giving us a light uh, that enlightens our way along the path of life, God. Help us, God, to have hearts that are submitted to you, surrendered to you, and seeking you. Remind us, Holy Spirit, that whether we can clearly discern your will or not, to, that, that you want us to have an orientation of surrender. Living in love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's kingdom people said, God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and build a kingdom. 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 Love you. Go out and build a kingdom.